0: Welcome to the Primary Source Podcast. My name is Tom Bober, a school librarian in the suburbs of St. Louis, Missouri. This podcast is here to explore the uses of primary sources in K-12 libraries and classrooms. We'll dig into resources and teaching strategies, talk to educators who are utilizing primary sources, and supporters of educators who curate these incredible items and use them in their work. Well, before we get started with today's episode, I just got back in town from a quick visit to Columbia, South Carolina, where I had an opportunity to work with about 30 librarians and teachers, all the while talking about the intersection of primary sources and graphic novels, looking at how those two could be used together to inform student learning. And I just had a blast not only preparing for that few hours with those teachers, but also and more importantly with them and all of the incredible thinking that they did and just the willingness to really take a deep dive and a look at how these could work together. I had a blast with them. I want to thank the University of South Carolina. I want to thank all of these classroom teachers and all of these librarians for having me out. It was a really incredible way to spend the end of my week. Let's go ahead and transition to the episode. We're gonna transition from graphic novels to picture books because we have another interview with another amazing historically based picture book author. This one is with Carol Boston Weatherford. She has written so many incredible books and this time we get a chance to speak with her about Unspeakable, the Tulsa Race Massacre. It took me a while to wrap my head around how I wanted to approach this book with primary sources. And so it took me a while to reach out to Carol and have this conversation. But I also have a blog post coming up through Knowledge Quest pretty soon. And I'll go ahead and post the link to those blog posts in the show notes I think that those are going to pair really nicely together, this interview and the blog post that will be coming out really soon. Carol gave some really amazing insights into Unspeakable, but as we got a chance to connect finally, and before we even started recording the episode, she mentioned that she had another book that she thought really paired nicely with primary sources, that she had something to share around that. And that is a book that hasn't come out yet, but has been announced. It is called Kin. And so we get a chance to hear not only about Unspeakable, but about this book that will be coming out called Kin and how primary sources played a role in both of those. We also get an opportunity to talk about the late Floyd Cooper, the illustrator of Unspeakable. And Carol has, as you can imagine, just some beautiful words to say about him and his work, and I was so happy to get a chance to share that conversation with her. Let's go ahead and jump right in to this wonderful interview with Carol Boston Weatherford. (laughs) we are here with another acclaimed author of nonfiction picture books and normally when I introduce an author, I want to mention some of their other books that you are aware of, some that are probably on your radar, and I wish I could show you my notes because it just goes down the side of my page here, the long list. So let me just name a couple of them, Voices of Freedom, Fannie Lou Hamer. Respect, the Aretha Franklin story. Moses, when Harriet Tubman led her people to freedom. The Roots of Rap. Box Henry Brown, mails himself to freedom. We also have Freedom in Congo Square. And one that's coming out soon, The Faith of Elijah Cummings, the North Star of Equal Justice, which I cannot wait to read. But we're here today to talk about unspeakable, the Tulsa Race Massacre, and maybe some other surprises with author Carol Boston Weatherford. Carol, thank you so much for joining us today on the Primary Source Podcast.
1: Glad to be here, Tom. Thanks for having me.
0: We are excited. So I know we are going to talk about some other work. You gave me a little hint. I don't know exactly what's coming, but I would love for you to tell any of our listeners who haven't had an opportunity to read Unspeakable yet a little bit about that book.
1: Unspeakable tells the story of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre, which is the most violent incident of racial violence in our nation's history. Uh, Tulsa was home to Greenwood, which was famous for Black Wall Street. Greenwood was a pr- predominantly African-American district, and Black Wall Street was the wealthiest Black district in the entire United States by 1921. Uh, it boasted... Um, you know, lots of uh, lots of businesses, like 200 businesses. It, it had um, its own school system, its own libraries, its own hospital, um, Black doctors, Black lawyers. Um, it was really um, a symbol of Black exceptionalism. However, not everyone who lived in the community was wealthy. Uh, but at that time, Tulsa was known as the Magic City because of the oil boom and the uh, prosperity that was within the reach of anyone who was, you know, around for it to trickle down to. So even domestics in the community, you know, benefited from uh, the oil boom and were able to, you know, to build homes and um, productive lives and educate their children. And uh, it was really, um, I think it was really, you know, a glorious glorious past, you know, despite the fact that it was during the Jim Crow era. Uh, now that all ended because, uh, whites were not pleased with that community that symbolized, you know, black prosperity and more importantly, equality, racial equality. Uh, African American achievement, you know, flew in the face of, um, white supremacy. So there was an incident between a, between two teenagers, a black, uh, shoeshine man, and a white elevator operator, female elevator operator. And no one really knows what happened between the two, except that she let out a sound. And then rumors spread that he had assaulted her. He was put in jail and a vigilante mob decided that they were going to take the law into their own hands. Uh, They were blocked by uh, black World War I veterans who went to the jail armed to protect this man. But after that... The white a white mob attacked the Greenwood community and burned it to the ground. Um, the estimated damage in economic in, in economic terms would be two hundred million dollars in today's money. Three hundred people were were left dead. Uh, an estimated three hundred people were left dead, and uh, eight thousand African Americans were homeless as a result of this attack. That it was later found, seventy five years later, confirmed that police allowed to happen. So, and, and this whole incident was really swept under the rug. Local, local white leaders didn't want others to know, people outside of Oklahoma to know about it. And they also wanted it to be termed a riot rather than a massacre because terming it a riot meant that uh, the, the black people who owned property and businesses would not be eligible to file insurance claims. So that is um, in effect the event that um the that that the, that the subtitle refers to however i spend uh, about two one half to two thirds of the book recreating the greenwood community to show not only the um remarkableness of it but the everydayness of it so i you see um, Domestic workers who are off on a Thursday and they get their hair done and you hear about marriage proposals that took place in the ice cream, uh, in the confectionery store and the ice cream shop. You hear about the two movie theaters, including the Dreamland, which was black owned. And you hear about, um, you know, really what brought um, African-Americans to uh, Oklahoma to begin with um, from, you know, from Exodusters who um, came out during, you know, during the Reconstruction era. Uh, seeking a better life uh, than than they were able to have in the South, to people who came, you know, close in the early 1900s who were uh, seeking the kind of prosperity that the oil boom promised. So that is, um, in a nutshell, that is what Unspeakable is about. It's essentially a lamentation for the place that that was green, the Greenwood community in 1921, and a testament uh of the people who survived and the people who perished in the massacre itself.
0: I'm so glad that you mentioned this where through around a half to two thirds of the book where you're really, as you mentioned, you said recreating the Greenwood community because this is something that really struck me with the book. I had done, I'd read a YA book about the Tulsa massacre. And so I had a lot of background knowledge and just from that book, But then when the picture book became available, I was really kind of wondering, how is Carol Boston Weatherford going to handle all of this that I have read, you know, all of this um, kind of gruesome brutality that happened Mm -hmm. towards this community? And I thought that it was so beautifully handled that while the actual... Massacre kind of takes place over just a couple of page spreads, the community is so established by the time that that happens that it's just gut-wrenching as a reader right,
1: to right. just go
0: through those two pages and yet so appropriate to so many young readers, I think. And and so it was really, it, the, the pacing of that was so beautifully done in my mind. I, I, want, I, I want to ask, I, I know that, of course, The the anniversary of of the Tulsa Race Massacre was just this past late spring and early summer, late May, early June of this this year. Um, But I know, of course, that these manuscripts are written years before this book comes out. And I'm wondering what gave you the inspiration to write about the Greenwood community and this event?
1: Well, uh, first of all, um, I... My mother passed down to me some family lore about a lynching in our family. And although I've not been able to find, you know, documents, documentation that says this person was lynched, uh, you know, if, if if family is saying it happened and you have a death certificate that he burned to death in his home and, you know, there was no no homicide involved, then, you know, you you, you believe the family lore. Most lynchings, in fact, were undocumented and so I wanted to write about that very personal um, lynching, uh, even though I didn't know, you know this particular relative. He was, he, he, uh, was killed in 1939, long, you know, long before my time. Uh, but I wanted to write about that, and I did, in a poem called Lynched, and I wasn't, a, I wasn't able to find a home for it. And then I thought, well, maybe I should look at the history of lynching in the United States, and I thought about the, the Tulsa race massacre uh, because it was one of the worst incidents of racial violence in our nation's history. I did not time it uh, for, you know, to, for release during the centennial year. I came up with the idea in 2018. I approached Floyd Cooper, uh, with whom I had collaborated on um, the Tulsa race, ma- I mean, uh, on uh, the YA book, YA verse novel, Becoming Billie Holiday. And I, I want to just read to you the, uh, the message that I sent to Floyd back in uh, probably the summer of 2018. Um, so it reads, You and I should do a picture book on Black Wall Street. I envision a book-length poem, perhaps starting with Once Upon a Time. What do you think? And Floyd texted back, OMG, I must do this. I was born and raised in Tulsa, Okay. And I was like, duh, I knew you were born and raised in Tulsa. And that's why I'm approaching with this project, because I know it's going to be a passion project for you. And indeed it was. And I, you know, of course, I could not have imagined that this would be among the last books that Floyd would see published. I had no idea that he was ill until a day before he passed away. So, you know, it's, I I, I keep saying that I believe, well, when he sent me the, when he sent me the um, uh The cover um, of the the cover illustration, I I texted back, Caldecott calling, and I probably shouldn't even say this out loud. And, you know, he didn't, you know, of course he didn't, didn't reply to that. But um, I do believe this is Floyd's greatest work and perhaps the book that he was born to create. And I'm so glad that I could do it with him.
0: It really is beautiful illustrative work. His work always is, but but there's something I think exceptional. And and to kind of segue into the primary source piece, I we maybe you know Carol, maybe you don't. I just kept noticing all of the little storefront signs that he would place throughout the illustrations, and just had to believe that. These were the names of, of real shops that that oh, we you would find walking in Greenwood and and there's work to find that out. Right. There's there's a due, right, there's a due right. diligence that is done to, to find that out. But yes, across the across the board, beautiful illustrations. Let's talk a little bit more about primary sources and, and the role that they played in this book. And then I know you mentioned you wanted to kind of talk about some other primary source work that, right. that you've done as well.
1: Well, first of all, I love um, primary source research. I have I fell in love with the primary source research, particularly picture research, um, back in the early '80s when I was in um, in graduate school, and I found my way to uh, the Library of Congress's Prints and Photographs Department, and to uh, Moreland Spingarn Research Center at Harlem at uh, Howard University, and to the Schomburg Center uh, in Harlem. Uh, of course, I later wrote about. Uh, Arturo Schomburg, the Schomburg Center's namesake, who was a Black bibliophile during the Harlem Renaissance. So he, of course, had a, a, an appreciation for primary sources as well and had a voluminous collection of them. And any anybody who's writing about uh, the uh, African diaspora or about African-American history today owes a debt of gratitude to Arturo Schomburg, because the Schomburg Center is the, the most... Uh, probably the most famous and the, and the largest repository of uh, materials uh, on Africana, uh, in the Western world at least. So uh, when I approached uh, this project, I was fortunate, you know, because of timing. Uh, when I fell in love with primary source research back in the 80s, there was no such thing as digitization. And I had to actually go to to Harlem. I had to actually go to D.C. I I worked in D.C. at the time, so that wasn't much of a stretch. But by the time I wrote this book, I was living in North Carolina. But thanks to digital collections, I was able to um, access materials that had been collected by um, the uh, Tulsa Historical Society, the Greenwood Cultural uh, uh, Organization, and also, uh, I was able to access the the report of the Tulsa Race Massacre Commission, which was a, a commission that was uh, charged in 1996 with investigating and really getting to the bottom of uh, the the facts of the of the massacre. And so, I was able to access materials like that. So, on uh, across these various you know various websites, I was able to listen to oral histories. I was able to look at primary source photographs and I mean, there's just so many of them, uh, you know, of uh, when the, of when the massacre was actually going on, you know, the fires and the, I mean, burned bodies and, you know, things that Floyd and I uh, discussed neither in the text nor uh, in the, in the uh, illustrations um, to Floyd's credit uh, his, his illustrations are just so cinematic. And I knew he would bring that type of uh, flair to the project. And that was another reason that I wanted to work with him besides the fact that he uh, was a a Tulsa native. Now, in the process of um, doing the research, Floyd had a relative who reminded him that their grandfather had lived through the massacre. And and that jogged Floyd's memory. He was able to remember some of the stories that his grandfather, a survivor of the massacre, had told him as a boy. So I think that may be the most important primary source, you know, of the entire book. Of course, I used all these other sources, and as did he, to you know, to find out the names of the businesses and what kind of clothes people wore. But I, I am sure that the soul of the book, at least the soul of the illustrations, is is Floyd's grand Grandpa Williams, who was a teenager at the time the massacre took place. Now, I, if if he was anything like. um uh, other survivors, uh, some of them are still alive. Uh, for example, 107 year old Viola Fletcher uh, testified before Congress at a hearing about reparations and she attested that the events of that day had seared themselves into her memory. She was only seven when the massacre took place, but this is what she remembered and was haunt as haunt is still haunted by to this day. They call her mother Fletcher. I still see black men being shot, black bodies lying in the street. I still smell smoke and see fire. I still see black businesses being being burned. I still hear airplanes flying over he, overhead. I hear the screams. I have lived through the massacre every day. Our country may forget this history, but I cannot. And so Floyd and I set out to uh, not only to document the massacre, but also to evoke Black Wall Street's past glory, as we do in the in the first half of the book. And then to choose, you know, scenes that would be, you know, kid-friendly enough, gentle enough uh, of the massacre. So you don't see the blood. You do see some fire, but you don't see the blood. You don't see, you know, dead bodies, but you do see families fleeing. And in, in creating this... Um, structuring this, I, I did two things. One, I took a forensic approach to research. And, you know, whenever, if, if, you, if anyone watches um, police procedurals on TV or any kind of, you know, crime dramas or legal dramas, you know that in order to uh, try a case or def- to prosecute a case, uh, you must recreate the crime scene. And so that was also part of showing uh, what Greenwood was like, Prior to the massacre, because you can't I mean, like even when they when, hurt, when tornadoes or hurricanes hit, you know, the cameras come in, the news news crews come in and they show the devastation, you know, the, the, the personal belongings in people's yards. So you can't you know, you can't talk about the loss from fire without talking about what was inside the house. You know, what was lost, you know, the the, the family photographs, the, you know, the the, the clothing that, you know, things that can't be sentimental items that can't be replaced, as well as things of value that can be replaced if people can afford to replace them.
0: I, I think so true. And um, I, I find it just fascinating about your kind of analogy of this to a police crime drama. I mean, just setting setting the scene up of, of what things looked like before the devastation. You're reminding me of the end papers of this book that I'm sure were very carefully selected, um, the front end papers being uh, one street in the, in the Greenwood community, and, and the second, and, and it, it's, it's a, an illustration um, from, from Floyd Cooper, and then the, the back end papers being a photograph of um, the devastation, which is just, I I don't know how to, what word to use other than just unbelievable. I mean, uh, even after reading this book and and reading the YA book, and um, which doesn't make me an expert by any stretch of the imagination, but I felt like I had an idea in my head and then seeing those back end papers really, um, which is for, I'm sorry, for those who maybe haven't looked at it, it's, you just see the devastation of, of the fire, I, I'm guessing. I mean, the just right, build, exactly. buildings and, and, and bed frames and and um, you know tree burnt tree stumps and you could just tell that this is the aftermath of right, right. of the vibrant community that you talked oh, about in this book.
1: And what that drives home for me is the fact that the human heart is about the size of a fist, but if the human heart is filled with hate, look how hate can spread. You know, hate can spread so that it burns down an entire community and burns and with it, the hopes and dreams of the people who live there. So, you know, that's, that's why it's so important to snuff, to snuff out hate.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I I just, I, can I make one other reference that to something you just said uh, a a few minutes ago, Carol, and that is this idea of, of, you mentioned children. And I just thought that uh, I know we're talking about a lot about Floyd's work in this book, but I, I thought his, selection of where he was placing children in the illustrations was so pointed as well and 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 just so carefully selected i it was it was something that i was kind of looking for and and wondering and i probably didn't look until maybe the fifth or sixth time that i had read the book but then made the made the decision like oh well where's where are the children seen here and um again it both in, in kind of all stages in in the in the establishing of the community in One child, as you're seeing, the the kind of the the color of flames and smoke, and then uh, a child also shown in the rebuilding, which I thought was just, again, just so well done.
1: Yeah, Floyd's use of um, children in the book, uh, in the illustrations and his placement of them, was very uh, important to me. Uh, People often ask me whether children are too tender for tough topics, so I think it's important to show uh, well my answer is no, they're not, but it's important and and the reason that they're not is because children lived through so much of the of, of, children lived through the struggle. you know everything that this nation has been through, uh you know, whether we're talking to black children, white children, whatever, children have lived through it. so children can can learn about it. If, if children of the past could be enslaved, then today's children can learn about slavery. you know, if children of the past could be, you know, Torn from their their tribal lands and put in, uh, you know, missionary schools, indigenous children. Then, then today's children can learn about it. And if children could be uh, victimized uh, in the in the massacre, uh, could lose their homes, could lose their lives, uh, could be you know traumatized for life by the massacre, then today's children can learn about it. Now, I want to talk about just one illustration. Um, I'm not sure which ones you were most struck by, but I'm most struck by the the cover illustration, and the masterful composition of it. Um, just in terms of the you know the golden triangle that uh, artists the the golden golden proportion that that uh, artists talk about is, is absolutely perfect, and the child's eye is at the very center of that illustration, and the and the the people on the cover all have their eyes closed. And the family is kind of in a very loose embrace as they as they flee the Greenwood uh, community, uh, and this one child, the youngest child, is in her parents' arms, and she has one eye open, and I and I think she has one eye open, and she looks kind of looks at the at the reader and says, you know, believe this, you know, it, 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 this truth cannot be denied. So you know, I just, you know, I'm I'm sure that Floyd was very intentional. Um, about where he placed the children, uh, as intentional as he was about where he placed that little girl's eye in the center of the cover cover illustration.
0: It is one that that, that her 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 gaze follows you. There's no question. It does. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It does. Uh, well done.
1: I would love to see you know the the the, the full size painting of that if it's larger than the um, than the actual cover. I would love to Abs- see that.
0: Absolutely. Um, I want to give us an opportunity and I want to be respectful of your time, but you had mentioned earlier that you wanted to talk about another piece of work that had been announced, but that also had some really interesting primary source connections. I'm not, I, I don't know what it is, but I want to give you space to, to share a little bit. Thank about that. you. Uh,
1: this, you know, this uh, love affair that I have had with primary sources has, as I said, has been going on since the 1980s. And I think the, the most powerful research and the, and the, the research that has affected me the most has been for a project that I'm working on with my son, illustrator Jeffrey Weatherford, entitled KIN, K-I-N. And it is about our family's history on a um, plantation on Maryland's eastern shore. Uh, our family was enslaved um, at Y House, uh, which was Maryland's largest slaveholding plantation. The most famous person enslaved there was Frederick Douglass, who... Primary source wrote about my great 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 grandfather, who was also in, who was an elderly man by the time young Frederick Douglass reached that plantation, so that um, that passage along with um, some recognition uh, given to that relative's namesake, both of them are in, are named Isaac Copper. Um, For service in the U.S. Colored Troops and for founding a a village in Maryland, on the eastern shore of Maryland, egged me on to research my family history to try to connect those two ancestors to each other. And the research led me to Maryland Historical Society, where I saw um, ledgers that the Lloyd family, they were the plantation owners. Um, The plantation is now in its, it's no longer a plantation, obviously, but it's in its 11th generation of family ownership. And, you know, I saw my, my, my relatives names on the, uh, in the ledger, um, you know, indicating what their ages were, um, what the quality of their labor was deemed by the master, you know, whether they were past labor or, uh, you know, I, I, I saw, um, uh, how much they were valued at. I have since been inside the, the, uh, what's known as the great house where many of my relatives work, that my relatives work not only in the fields at that plantation, but also in in the dwelling. And I have, and most recently, I went to the burial ground um, on the plantation where the enslaved people are buried. So um, the, much of the house is, is as it, uh, as it was historically. So there are pieces of furniture that in the house that date back to, the 17th century, the you know, early 17th century, and I have, have researched uh, slave ships to see um, what ships my my family may have come over on, and I even went to uh, Ghana and stood at the door of no return. So that that has been, I think, the most compelling research uh, of my lifetime.
0: I'm just thinking, and I was having this conversation with with another author in a very different context, but this idea about place as primary source and, Mm -hmm. and actually standing in this, in the space of, of someone else and, and what that does to you, not, not even just as an author, but just as in your case, uh, a relative, but, but also just as a, as a person, I mean, it's, it, it is kind of time traveling almost in a sense to be able to do that.
1: It really is. And I had, I had actually been to the plantation before and it's not a, it's not a museum this is where this is a place where people live and it's not you know it's not open for tours uh, but I had been outdoors on the plantation uh, before uh, many years ago but I had never been inside until last summer and one of the things that I did was I held the key in my hands and the key probably weighs half a pound I mean it's it I held my hands together and the key was so big it spanned the length of my hands uh, and because my uh, grandfather, great, 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 great grandfather that um, Frederick Douglass wrote about, was always listed first in the ledger, I believe that he was probably—I don't know if he would have been the keeper of the keys—or he—he—he definitely—he he definitely was a house servant, and I think that he probably held those keys in his hands. I also looked in a mirror that is very—you know—it's very—it's veined and dark now. It's a mirror that dates to the 17th century. And I, ima- I couldn't, couldn't even really see my own reflection except as a shadow. But I imagined that, you know, that my ancestors, you know, looked, saw themselves in that same mirror as they were going about their, their work in that, in that house. And of course, um, I, I, I returned to the, to the plantation several times this summer, and I kept wondering how, how should I feel, you know? I kept, you know, waiting for, to feel. You know something that would be you know extremely moving or jarring, or, um, but it wasn't until I went to the burial ground by myself, um, and stood there and touched the ground that I that I cried, and was just overcome. You know by by the sacrifices that um, the enslaved people made uh, for for generations at that place. I mean, at any given time. Um, the Lloyd family who owned not only that plantation but but you know dozens of other farms in the area and even as far away as uh, Mississippi uh, owned perhaps as many as a thousand enslaved people at a time. so you know it's, it's a huge huge sacrifice that was paid by not only by my family but by uh, the families of other others who were enslaved there.
0: Well, I cannot wait to see, how you take all of that experience and pour it out onto the page. I'm, I'm looking forward to reading Kin. And, um, is, is there any information yet on a release date or are we too early for that? Are we just on, we just have I'm announced not the, sure the, they, I'm
1: not sure they're ready to announce the release date, especially given the COVID, the way COVID is. Well, sleeping. you're right. Everything, <laughs> yeah, Slowing running. everything down. It'll probably be I, 20, I, I'd say probably 2023 or 2024. Um, my son is working on illustrations now. And just to give you a hint at, at the approach that I take, I have recreated the voices not only of uh, my family members, but of their contemporaries who were enslaved at that time. Uh, I've recreated the voices of of the masters, uh, various you know various masters and mistresses of Y House, as well as uh, dogs and furniture.
0: <laughs> well, this really has me intrigued now. I, I well, I all I know is with that long list of your work that I read earlier that I know that it's going to be masterful. So, Carol, I I really appreciate you spending some time with us today, you sharing uh, your story, not only about Unspeakable and all the great conversation around Floyd Cooper, but also sharing a little bit of the background for this upcoming book, Kin. I can't wait to read that, and I know that our listeners will be looking forward to it Carol, thank you so much today for joining us on the Primary Source Podcast.
1: Thank you, Tom.